show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Good afternoon. It's June 10th, 2018. You're listening to Objection to the Rule, news and politics on Radio Free Brooklyn. Trump had a full schedule this week. He walked out on the G7 summit after rallying for the reinstatement of Russia. He also practiced pardoning by uh, by discussing pardoning Muhammad Ali and making a case for self-pardoning. And at home in New York City, ICE officials have been on a blitzkrieg And half-priced metro cars may soon be available to low-income New Yorkers. But who is going to pay when we are all broke? We say goodbye to a culinary legend and one of our own, Anthony Bourdain, who committed suicide. We celebrate his legacy and rebellion today on Objection to the Rule. We are live every Sunday at 1 with a Brooklyn perspective on news and politics. I am Rosie, joined by Violet. Violet, are you with us? I am with you. Can you hear me? Um, yep. Yes, we hear you. And um, I'm also here with our summer intern, Ellie, a recent graduate of Bennington and founder of her college's radio station. Welcome to the studio. Hi, guys. How are you today? Um, I just I wanted to start with the G7 uh, summit uh, because it's such it's been such a big deal. And I think it's one of the biggest shocks um thus far and um you know trump was a bullion at the g7 summit this week with name calling insistence on russia being admitted and an abrupt departure just before the climate change talks trump was reluctant to attend the summit to begin with what do we make of this recent debacle and the future consequences of his actions at the summit because a lot of countries are angry and one picture that um, Ellie and I discussed before the show was the picture which many people have seen of Trump sitting down and uh, Angela Merkel on her uh, um, um, leaning over on a desk and everyone standing in front of Trump looking angry while he has this body language of someone who just doesn't care. Violin? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's classic Trump, right, on the one hand. We're used to, by now, his uh, devil-may-care attitude towards world powers and towards the allyships that you, the U.S. has built over many years. Um, but at the same time, he is America in a big way, and, you know, we as liberals in America can turn our heads and say, oh, uh, Trump doesn't represent us, not my president, but he is our president, and uh, the the rest of the nations, as he breaks these ties, it has long-lasting effects for us. And, you know, he refused to sign anything of the agreements that came outside of the G7 summit, and a lot of Country, European countries have said we can make turn it into a G6 summit. Um, right. How do you feel about that, Ellie? I mean, going back on uh, what Violet was saying, yeah, he really, you know, as us liberals, we can, um, you know, snub our noses at it, at it, but ultimately he is a quite a large representation of not only America, but of American culture. And so, um, you know, if it ends up becoming, I also you know, foresee um, some problems, especially with actually trade, you know, and like trade agreements and increased tariffs, because I know there was some issues with Trump on that as well earlier last week. And so I have a feeling if it ends up becoming a G6 summit, I, you know, I'm not going to stand by it, obviously, as a person who cares about this country, but it's not up to us anymore, I think, in a lot of ways. Are we forcing ourselves into isolation? Because obviously... You know, with the name calling of Trudeau and claiming that he backstabbed him mm. and also um, the animosity he has with world leaders, even the ones that he that make an effort to assuage his ego. Um, it makes me wonder if he isn't trying to make the United States fail to destroy it in a way by isolating it and 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 not and not letting it be open to the rest of the world. I mean, do you feel like that that is happening? Why don't you go, Violet, first? Sure, sure. Um, I think, I'm not sure if it's happening in so many words. I mean, I'm sure that is the the effect as he unravels uh, all of these uh, agreements and all of the things that keep uh, our allies together. Um I don't know if in his mind he's thinking this is the worst thing for America like we are. But on the other hand, I think an unforeseen consequence of this, aside from just, you know, uh, total destruction of the United States, is um, the government and the checks and balances system gets a lot stronger, and we understand what we want a president to be able to do and what we don't. Uh, I believe this week Congress uh, started the process of limiting the executive branch's ability to impose new tariffs uh, without um, agreeing with Congress on it. And that's huge. You know, if we, uh, I think a lot of the things that allowed Trump into office and allows him to do what he continues to do is we sort of have a honor system for our government. You know, we assume that uh, whoever's in the president's role will respect the office and not go back on a lot of what we've planned. But we don't have rules in place yet to keep that as it is. That's an excellent point, Violet, mm. because one of the things you said about the honor system, um, which leads into our the next, um, you know, uh, absurdity, is that Trump... Um, 
was uh, uh, was talking about pardoning Muhammad Ali, who is uh, who is not even, and he talks about pardoning himself. And you know, a lot of constitutional lawyers uh, have looked into uh, whether the president can pardon himself, and he mm. can, in fact, pardon himself. He has the power. They did not. They purposely did not restrict the power of the president in pardoning. And so he can pardon himself as long as it's not an impeached, um, as long as it's not due to in, an impeachable offense. Yeah. And so he can he can pardon himself for anything. He can break the law and pardon himself. And so this sort of honor system is being is being tested. And I didn't know what to make when um, when Trump announced that he was thinking of pardoning Muhammad Ali, which first of all. He doesn't need to be pardoned. Uh, well, number one, he's dead. Uh, but they have pardoned people after their death, so they can receive right. awards after the fact and all these other things. But um, it was overturned, and he had already been um, forgiven as a result by Carter when he pardoned all the people who uh, avoided the Vietnam War, avoided the draft. Mm. So twice over, he it was already taken care of. He won his case as well before even that um so why is the president discussing pardoning somebody who doesn't need to be pardoned what is he actually doing i'm trying to figure this out does anybody have any inkling or idea of what might be the purpose of 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 seriously considering pardoning someone who doesn't need to be pardoned i think it sends a message out um and you know, we heard a lot of pardons this week, uh, and in recent weeks, we know he famously met with uh, the uh, policymaker Kim Kardashian West um, to uh, speak about pardoning someone uh, who had been uh, in prison for many years. Um, and he also pardoned uh, the boxer Jack Johnson, uh, yeah. who's another African American boxer, uh, and it's a. Um, it's a pardon after his death, but it meant a lot to his family. So it, it's a very popular thing for a president to do, and it uh, it means a lot to the survivors of that uh, person. I, I don't think it worked out with Muhammad Ali because of the reasons you mentioned, but it, it's a thing Trump can do without a lot of pain, especially if the person is dead or very elderly. And, or um, African-American. <laughs> right, especially that, yeah. Um, and uh, it it's, it gives him uh, another push. Yeah, I wonder, I see it somewhat as a bit of an image boost um, for him, you know, or like, you know, presidents in general when they do specific pardons and especially high-profile high pardons in that way. It's like a, a, a way of like putting a moral spin then on like his work as a, as a politician ultimately and as the president of the United States, um, considering that his ratings have not always been the best and the opinions especially in new york of him have always been quite deplorable so <laughs> do you think he's warming up to pardon himself because he made a statement that says i can pardon myself i haven't done anything wrong probably which in itself those two statements together actually don't seem to belong together well it's kind of like pleading the fifth when you um you're kind of like when jurors like perceive pleading the fifth or like when a committee perceives pleading the fifth as like a way of like, Oh, I'm guilty. Do you know what I mean? Under that assumption, it's same with, Oh, I can pardon myself, but I haven't done anything wrong. It gives that same kind of message that this is going to come up. Ultimately. I think he is prepping 
um, the public for that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I know that, you know, I know that Violet has, um, uh, that Violet's news porn for a while was the Mueller investigation. I don't oh, know yeah. if it still is for you, oh, yeah. Violet, your news porn. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's getting excited. <laughs> Do you think the Mueller investigation is at the point, because I feel like it's lost a little steam. Do you think it's still at the point where, uh, where it's heating up and, and Trump should be sweating? No, I mean, I think Trump is sweating. I think that's a big sign. Uh, if it doesn't communicate anything else substantial, it's a sign that Trump is still sweating about this, that he's saying, A, I'm innocent, and B, it doesn't matter, because I can pardon myself. You know, that's a big, I think that that's just him trying to say, like, drop it, you know, like, yeah. no matter what, what, whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, it doesn't matter, you can't do anything to me, just stop. So, you know, he feels that they're gaining on him in some way, whether they are who knows? You know, it's been such a long investigation, and maybe it doesn't even matter because we're like we're a year and a half through his term already. I was, um, you know, I know that you. Uh, one thing I wanted to let everyone know is that uh, Violet is um, stuck in Long Island. What is the reason that you are stuck in uh, Long Island? Because I, 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 you know, I, I was um, because I was, I was thinking about the MTA when you, uh, when you said this. Yeah. Well, uh, tell us why you're stuck in Long Island. <laughs> Well, I would like to point out that the Long Island Railroad is, in fact, uh, part of the MTA, so I can continue to blame the MTA for my <laughs> predicament. Um, it's, uh, you know, there were no buses out that would uh, take me back to the city, to my home of Brooklyn, uh, in time for this show, unfortunately. It's, uh, this is the, summer is the peak season for Long Island, uh, so uh, any, everybody in, uh, is leaving on Sunday, going back to the city, and I could not join that tide in time today, unfortunately. Does that bother you that the tickets would sell out? Obviously, it means because it's public transportation, they're responsible for transporting the public. <laughs> and most people who are traveling from Long Island to Brooklyn are, you know, um, not tourists. <laughs> and <laughs> and so there isn't enough to accommodate the people who actually need to make this trip because they live there and uh, and they need to get to their family or a business or something and what is i it made me concerned that like that uh, that it would sell out and and what this means that the MTA is not even able to provide enough service for the demand right and in fact um it's not just that they would sell out. I'm on the far edge of Long Island. I'm on the uh, the close to the end of the um, South Fork, and um, there are uh, a few limited transportation options out of here. You can take the MTA Long Island Railroad, um, or you can take the uh, the bus, the Hampton Jitney bus. Um, and each option uh, from here to the city is close to $30 a ride, which is not affordable really for anyone. One way? One way. One oh, my way. God. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're going from a closer town, it's a little bit less. But, uh, you know, and it's not just, you know, some people really can afford it. Some people who live out here, it's not as much of a problem for them, even though it could be much more affordable. But a lot of the people who are making this trip are uh, service people, you know, people who serve the communities out here. And I don't see how they're affording that. I, I don't see how that's working out. And, you know, it's a challenge for them if they can't make the bus. 
And are where and um, where are you? Are you outside right now? I am. I am inside. I am in um, safe conditions for radio broadcasts. Uh, <laughs> Do you at least yeah. have a view? Sorry. Do you even have a view? Uh, if I stand, I was sitting between two couches, but standing up, yes, I have a lovely view of uh, some farmland, and I uh, can almost see to the water. Okay, we're just trying to envision your uh, your location. Yeah, well, I'm in a room with a, a very comfortable furniture and sort of a um, like a tan white uh, theme going on. So it's almost like a modernist painting, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know what? I'm going to take a music break. Um, we have our, for you, it's, uh, it's time to listen to polka. Our local polka band, the Polka Brothers, were recently on Radio Free Brooklyn. You can see them live at the Bohemian Beer Garden in Astoria, where they have a regular gig. Um, Star Wars fans will recognize the first song. Welcome to the CD um, uh, Cantina on Mos Eisley. And that was the song from Star Wars. And here is more Polka Brothers doing a cover of Prince. Uh, I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you anything. Purple rain, purple rain. 
ever wanted to be your weekend lover. One more from the Polka Brothers. It isn't a Sunday without Ozzy Osbourne.
I hope everyone enjoyed the polka version of Prince and Ozzy Osbourne. Did you, Violet? I did. I did, yes. <laughs> it got a lot of diversity in there with the polka. Good to hear. And um, were you surprised with the first song? Did you recognize it when you heard it? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I didn't recognize it, I'm embarrassed to say, but I appreciated it once, uh, once I knew what it was. I hope all of you enjoyed the polka music. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And um, and I hope the Star Wars fans enjoyed that. Um, ICE, let's talk about ICE. ICE has caused a stir in New York City with 200 arrests in the first couple of months of the year. The NYPD has recently ignored over 1,000 detainer requests from ICE and, and also haven't even honored, uh, not, not just honored them, but have completely ignored them. Um, and um, and with all this uh, clash between the city of New York and the ICE um, officials, um, does it seem like there is unnecessary muscle in New York City than in other places when it comes to ICE? And should we be expending federal dollars chasing down pizza delivery guys and bodega employees? And the next concerning thing pick any of these questions why are two government agencies at odd in the same country um let's let violet pick one of those questions yeah. or i can pick for you if you're feeling confused um i'll uh i'll speak to uh the what should we be focusing our energy in new york on targeting bodega employees and pizza delivery people you know uh, I think one of the reasons New York ends up being a, uh, a battle- battleground here is, first of all, it's sanctuary city status, but a lot of cities end up being sanctuary cities. It's not just New York. New York is historically and continues to be a huge port, a huge point of entry for uh, for new immigrants, and it embraces them. It it hasn't always embraced immigrants, and as we've seen with that lawyer, we still have our factions who are anti-immigration. But for a large, to a large extent, uh, New York is made up of immigrants, and your your lived experience in New York, you come across a lot of immigrants, and you don't know their immigration status. You don't know if they've had a green card for 30 years or if they're naturalized citizens or if they don't have papers at all. You just you buy your uh, your coffee from them in the morning, you uh, ride in a cab, and uh, you get where you're going. Uh, without these people, what would New York be? It wouldn't be uh, the diverse place it is now, certainly. So should we be expending our energy on targeting these people? That's a good question. I, you know, I have my own opinions on that. I don't, I don't know why, uh, why ICE is clashing with, um, with New York right now. Well, I think part of it, um, and to speak on that, not only that, like, you know, New York is like a, an area of immigrants, but it's that our society wouldn't function really without them. You know, in the last era when we were talking with these butchers, you know, like the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, the people who feed us ultimately are immigrants. And so I think ice clashing then with, um, you know, like two forms, you know, two parts of the government clashing with each other, it speaks to not only the like larger national 
um, dichotomy that we have in our government, but also that um, this kind of goal of criminalizing um, like immigration, whether it be legal or not, you know, like um, and so and looking, you know, up north, even within New York State, looking at Saratoga over this semester and having, you know, ice raids in a, in a small place like Saratoga, you know, it's the hostility is has been seen and, and these clashes between ICE and, and local law enforcement is um, not outside of the barriers of New York City as well. But um, yes, Sorry. doesn't it seem barbaric to any of you that we have a um, an unrelenting, ruthless um, force of people that go out searching for people who they uh, who don't have the proper paperwork so that they can get rid of them. I feel that's very somehow I, I it looks so barbaric to me. Like uh, that you'd be going you'd be going out and looking for for non-citizens, like minding their own business, not committing a crime, um, you know, minding their own business, not making trouble and they just don't have what we have decided is the paperwork or the conditions necessary to be here the way we're legally supposed to be here and I, yeah i mean part of that's also like um what you can request asylum for so for example gang violence in el salvador you cannot request you know um asylum for those conditions even though it's a very real like you know human problem um my feeling about it you know working with migrant dairy farmers up north you know, every single week, you know, and being on the ground and being covered in cow shit all half the time is that these are people and it is incredibly barbaric because they're just trying to not only feed the population, but take care of their children and have, you know, the same things that we want for our own children as naturalized citizens is a better life than we had ourselves. And so to not be able to see that in a humanizing way speaks to the way that ICE wants to criminalize these things, both legally and um, in a very physical manner. I mean, PBS just did a study that, you know, um, ICE has lost, you know, 1500 children um, that were detained and separated from their parents. I mean, it's incredibly inhumane and, and things that happen on our own turf are not talked about enough. Um, in that way and happen in New York City especially those separations of families happen in these boroughs I think part of the problem is is that we uh, that there is a population or actually you know there is a um, a wave of sentiment where that people think that like um, illegal immigrants are vermin and the truth is is that they don't take apart what it means to be an illegal immigrant I mean let's face it most people you know, they'd rather stay home. They don't want to leave where they're from. There's all these frightening things about going to a whole new place, especially when the language isn't even the same. I mean, it's scary enough for somebody from the Midwest to move to New York City for the first time and the shock of that. Could you imagine if you didn't speak the language or understand the customs and had no money and just the shirt on your back and to be on the street and to fight your way to get a somehow scrap for any job that you can find so that you could eat and along with all of that and you leave because of something horrible in your own country whether it's gang violence uh religious persecution whatever it is um or the destruction environmental destruction of the land that you have farmed for centuries yeah as a family yeah you have no sustenance you know, and you have to move on, and, that's and to live with the yeah, and to live with the additional fear that somebody could show up after you have built yourself up to some decent living and remove you by force with weapons. 
it's uh, I couldn't even imagine living in that sort of world and living in that situation with that constant fear. Yeah, I've noticed that in some of the interviews that I've I've done with um, some of the farmers that we work with, you know, a lot of the people that when you're crossing, a lot of those people you will never, not only do you not know, but will never know again because they are often dying beside you. And that fear is somehow less frightening than what you have going on at home. And that message not being truly sent in this country speaks to then the way that ICE chooses to behave um, and be honestly a criminal entity. I know. And when we think of like, for example, you know, they cross um, in the example of Mexicans and Latin and South Americans, um, they cross barbed wire. They survive wild animals and patrol guards. And there have been situations where recently where a patrol officer shot somebody who was unarmed. You face all these danger and and the nerve of, of someone to think of you as a vermin when you have suffered so much. And I think that people don't think about that suffering. And I feel that Violet is suffering to say something. Violet, yeah. tell yeah. us. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, suffering in silence. Um, in addition to all of that, which is very true that you both point out, a lot of the people who are either uh, actively targeting these people or who are talking a, a, a good game about um, uh, closing the doors to immigration are themselves de- de- uh, descendant from immigrants who came here illegally. You know, a, a journalist uh, recently did a, uh, a project where she would look up the genealogies of some of the biggest uh, opponents to immigration in our government. And she often found that, you know, their families came here totally illegally. Their first language was Yiddish or another language. They didn't speak any English coming here. And they stayed. You know, they uh, they stayed on. They had children here. Their children were citizens, and that's that's how the that started. And that's just true for many of us, many more than we realize. And we don't, you know, we don't identify with the immigration cause after a generation or two. It becomes not our problem. It becomes something else. And people say, you know, I have no sympathy for people co- who come here illegally, who break the law. I'm a law-abiding citizen. But, you know, the only reason you're here is because people did that in the past. Yeah, I will. um, I definitely agree with you on the after generations that that no longer becomes a priority. But I will speak to, you know, um, children of immigrants, not only myself, but a lot of of, of my friends who are doing a lot of actual legal work in this. Part of their motivation then and part of a motivation for social change or nonprofit legal change, what have you, comes from having that visceral experience of like, what is the border? The border don't, doesn't mean, you know, what it means to the child of an immigrant versus, you know, someone like myself who is, you know, not of that area or, or of that kind of border for that matter. And so um, I definitely agree that, you know, priorities change as generations go, but um, some of the most amazing work is done not only by undocumented young people, but also like children of immigrants. So... But yeah, no, it is a very good point. You know, after a couple of generations, that's no longer your quote unquote American, whatever that may be. Um, right. You lose the consciousness yes. of the struggle. Yeah. I know. And with this whole situation with ICE, to, 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 to divert a bit, mm-hmm. is I'm actually very proud to call myself a New Yorker when the NYPD ignores 
the one uh, the over 1000 retainer uh, detainee detainer requests from ice yes. and refuses to cooperate with ice unless it's a crime and we have people sheltering other people and we have a public school system where you don't need to show any paperwork you can bring if you're an illegal immigrant you can bring your kid to school yeah and not only do we have public school we have public school in all, in all the major languages that are spoken of the immigrants who come to New York City to settle. And I am proud that I live in a in a city that it's as imperfect as it is and, and as inhospitable as it is, it does provide something. The city provides something for for people who are illegal. Yeah. And you can get, you know, there's or you can get health services. There's so many things you can get in New York City that you normally couldn't get outside of new york um if you were a non-citizen yeah Yeah. and i'm very and i and i felt great pride when i read that article but i was also disconcerted that you know that this would be going on um did any of you read about the um half-priced um fare cards that they are going to be offering as a six-month pilot program in new york city Yes, and in fact, we had uh, Jeff Jones of the um, Fair Fairs campaign on objection to the rule. They were, uh, he was one of our first guests last summer when we were just a, a little radio show starting up. Uh, <laughs> thanks again to Jeff for speaking with us. You can find that show online. Um, but uh, that campaign was part of the Community Service Society, uh, and they were uh, planning for a long time uh, fighting for this uh this, you know, right of uh, lower-income New Yorkers to uh, to be able to commute without breaking the bank. So I'm uh, I'm pleased to hear that it's moving forward. And I think it's interesting that uh, they were when we spoke to them at the time. They said, you know, funding for this is still up in the air, but they were hoping to use the millionaires' tax that De Blasio was uh, lauding at the time. But it looks like that's not going to be the source now. So. One of the shocking things was the uh, numbers. Um, you know, I uh, the Metro cards will be af- available to New Yorkers living below the federal poverty line. And the federal poverty line is defined as $12,000 a year for a single person um, and $24,399 for a family of four. Oh, my God. But here is an even scarier number. Um, about 800,000 New Yorkers in a city of eight and a half million people fall in this category. And when I see 800,000, I know 800,000 is the number of people that they have on record. Okay, not to mention all the people who make informal um, livings and kind of live off the grid and all these uh, and, and undocumented. undocumented workers and like and so the number is probably substantially larger and but I was 800,000 just to think that there is a family of four making less than $25,000 a year and having to feed those people clothe those people provide home or provide a shelter for them I don't even know if that's possible let alone healthcare. That's out of the question then even too. No, you're right. It's impossible. Yeah, at that rate, if you're making that much money, um, it's probably be- best not to even work and just to, you can't even live um, uh, on, on that much amount, uh, that amount. It's impossible. Um, and 
Um, and when I saw that number, I also thought about it. Um, I saw a survey recently about New York City is like the worst place. It was dead last for retirement. And I was going to, Violet, I want to start with you because I know, well, I have, you know, uh, my mom lives in New York City and your parents live in New, New York City and they're getting older and you probably have older relatives too. Um, how do you feel about New York City being a place to age in? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I grew up in New York. I spent most of my life there. So I know a lot of people who are aging in New York City. And I can understand that. My parents live in a four-story walk-up. Uh, so as they become more mobility impaired, we don't know what they're going to do, uh, how they're going to manage uh, le- entering and leaving their home. I uh, I spent a summer uh, when I was in school working with the uh, social service um, called DeRote, which is a social service for the elderly in New York City, uh, and it focuses on the elderly in the Upper West Side. A lot of what it does is visit and uh, give food to um, elderly people, who some of whom can't really leave their house or can't get around if they do leave their house because, you know, uh, um, taxis are not so easy to uh, get. They're expensive. Accessoride has its own host of issues uh, for mobility-impaired people. Accessoride is very difficult to use. I I remember, just so everyone knows, Accessoride is the (coughs) service offered by the MTA if you are unable... (coughs) If you're not near a handicap accessible, um, (coughs) sorry, subway station, or the bus is unreasonable um, as a form of transportation, they you have to make the reservation in advance. (coughs) I think it's at least um, I I think you have to give a three day advance notice and and make the appointment and and then you have to make the appointment for the return also three days in advance so you have for example it's fine if you're going to the doctor i guess because you make that appointment more than three days in advance and you know around what time you're going to leave the doctor or whatever but if you want to go visit a friend if you want to go somewhere um you can't use it for anything else really and so it's a very restricted system and it's also always late and not very pleasant to ride you know, if you compare it to the subway or the bus, it is not, imagine the subway or the bus being more pleasant. And you right. can't bring late, anybody late, with you. Late by a factor of hours often, yes. And um, it's had its own issues with drivers not uh, not helping or not being respectful to riders. Uh, this American Life radio show had a good piece on mm. that a few months ago um, for anyone who wants to check it out. But, yeah, all these factors together uh, make it very difficult for people who are, uh, who are aging in New York. Ellie, you know, you, uh, you don't live in New York City, um, and I know you don't like cities. But um, when you look, when you walk through the streets of New York City uh, for, to come into Radio Free Brooklyn for your internship, when you imagine aging in New York, if you imagine aging in New York City, what is the scariest or the biggest challenge you think would be? Stairs. Stairs. Um, in terms of, like, even if um, when it comes to accessibility, not being, like, wheelchair-bound, especially, like, 
Um, my grandparents were, or one of them uh, still walks faster than me, but up until a couple of years ago, my grandfather was faster than me when it came to walking, being accessible. He loved going to New York City. And then as soon as he got a cane and then a walker, that was just out of the question even, you know, and um, in terms of like, even flat ground museums, all these other things, it's the stairs that really freak me out because I just saw how much he struggled with six stairs to get into his own home in, in Connecticut. Like just six stairs was too much. And so to imagine moving around constantly and also the crowds and how many people and not, and worrying about, you know, um, getting knocked over, getting, you know, um, and people not being respectful of that. Not that I think, you know, New Yorkers are not respectful people, but being able to go out to the grocery store even, or, or being able to, you know, go down the street even and, and getting out of your apartment is what really freaks me out about getting older is it being able to go downstairs. Something as simple as that. So definitely speaking to what you were saying, Violet, about your parents being in um, four story apart or four, four flight of stairs they go up. Did you say? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That um, is very frightening to me. Stairs. Yeah. I think in addition to mobility, which is a huge issue for the elderly, um, housing security and mm. affordability is huge. You know, New York um, does have a lot of protections for the elderly in terms of subsi- uh, not only subsidized housing, but um, rent control and rent stabilization. Mm-hmm. You know, if they've lived for a certain number of years in their home, they can often uh, keep a livable rent. But those protections are eroding. Those apartments when people uh, when people leave them, they're no longer protected. And yeah. people coming in now, as uh, as we get older, and people who are maybe half a generation older than we are, move in. Those apartments aren't protected, and yeah. you know their rent continues to go up, even at, so uh, even as their income no longer does in retirement. Violet, have you ever had your uh, mobility um, challenge? Like, have you ever been on crutches or 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 temporarily been in a wheelchair? Or no, I'm I'm lucky to say that I haven't. Have Have both of you had that? I had happened. I was on crutches for a while, and I was, of course much younger than I am now, but I remembered thinking, God, it takes, I live one block from the train station and I felt like it took forever. Mm. And the stairs were so difficult to take on the crutches. And I thought, I'm going to be off these in six weeks. Like imagine all of the, and people were knocking me over and, and, and I was slower than everyone else. And I thought, God, how do old people survive in this city it's it seemed impossible and it used to like and i used to have to force myself to go out because it was such a pain to be outside on crutches but i had to force myself to go out and i couldn't even imagine being seriously challenged now um we're getting towards the end and i'm you know i wanted um you probably all know anthony bourdain died this past week um you know, from the bleachers, he looked like he had it all. An award-winning and amazing show, book deals, a child. He once said he felt like it was so good he had stolen it. Yet he committed suicide. I wanted to take a moment to talk about his work and about his death. What are some of the memories you have about Anthony Bourdain? Actually, you know, since Ellie is a foodie, why don't you start, Ellie? Um... I think one of mine uh, was actually when he was, I can't remember where in Southeast Asia, 
I think it was in either in Southeast Asia or China. He had had a bowl of of this like delectable soup with Barack Obama. This was relatively recently, and the, Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, Vietnam, and just the steam was just like catching, and the way that he was able to just like any person in front of him, either you know, like I know a lot of families have benefited from you know their restaurants being on his shows. Um, and made an American dream out of it, but also being able to sit across from, you know, the former president and be able to have that moment with him and just, you know, be able to talk about what is most important in life, which is food. Um, and the other is when he went to my mom's home country and being able to talk to both sides of, you know, the ethnic majorities in, in that country and really look at some of the food and some of the places that I have been to and be able to see someone else from a completely different walk of life and such an expertise to be able to appreciate what I got to grow up with so that's what really struck me and that was with his cnn show actually so i watched it no reservations yes it was on a sunday i was uh, i watched it with my mom Uh, we were curled up on the couch eating ice cream and we kept being like oh we've been there oh we've been there like so it was uh it was very sweet and very touching for me so violet any memories yeah uh i think what i remember most i wasn't a, a a watcher of his show but he stood up for people. You know, he was a celebrity, but he came to it uh, later in his life. He, he started in his 40s. That was when he really broke out mm-hmm. in, uh, in reporting and journalism for food. But he, uh, he went to uh, Gaza, and he had um, a show there. And he, uh, you know, um, people from that community posted in the aftermath of his death, you know, he, he was the only one who would rock my baby to sleep that night. You know, he, he saw and he um, illuminated the humanity in these places. And he, he went, the focal point was food, but he went far beyond food mm. to, uh, to show this on this major network. And that, that's something that not a lot of people do at all. I yeah you know, I wasn't uh, a fan of his show um, um, only because I it was to me when I used to watch it it used to have so much like like extra footage and dead time and and like it's like watching people eat and uh, to me that was not interesting but what what fascinated me about his show was that he inspired our entire country to be more adventurous about food about the world I feel like he going to places like Cambodia, mm. the Gaza, all these places where Americans just would not even consider going to eat even a, a meal, let alone go there. And to show something simple as what it's like to have a meal there and what it means to have a meal there and the ritual they have of celebrating food and bringing that to America, I think allowed us to connect with the rest of the world through food which is no matter where you're from you eat food Mm. and it's apolitical yes it's apolitical you eat food and not just that you not only eat the food but you got a way of making it taste the way you want it to taste you just don't put the raw food in your mouth and use it as fuel there is this entire depth to it and i really appreciate that he brought the world to us while so many of us were so scared to go to these places. And he kind of flared up our imagination about 
food and travel and and this he uh, some of the places he went to i thought wow that's really a stretch of inviting an american audience to and showing them what he is eating like Mm. he would put anything in his mouth i was convinced and not just that he didn't just talk about the food he talked about the culture you know the people he was meeting there who were sort of his ambassadors and and he was completely humble even though he was this famous celebrity chef i always thought that he had a very humble presence there for who he was i'm done proclamating (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i i'm not sure if you're interested in going in this direction, but I think that, uh, you know, it, that he and, uh, and Kate Spade and other celebrity ended their lives sort of out of the blue to the public this week. It, uh, it struck a chord with me and I, I know with many other people, especially those struggling. It's important to know if you're struggling, uh, there are ways to get help. Um, but, you know, it's when we when we hear about that. Of course, any sudden death is tragic, but it's almost as if the cause of death is is left blank. You know, we know it's uh, it's mental illness that the person was struggling with, uh, and that's often invisible to to most people. But we don't know why they're gone. You know, that's sort of lost to us. I know, and there was this, you know, one thing, you know, it's funny is that we haven't, as a country, talked about suicide uh, for a long time, and it's brought the conversation to the forefront. And one thing, what, num- what number I kept reading in the last 24 hours was suicides are up in this country 30%. And one, uh, one um, journalist said, if heart attacks were up 30%, what would a heart do- what would heart doctors be doing? What would be the heart association be doing? You know, if heart attacks were thirty percent up, that's a really large percentage. And they interviewed people at suicide hotlines, and they all said the same thing: if you just if you know if you um, if you have uh, just asking somebody, are you thinking about ending your life? Are you thinking about suicide? Just that confrontational question is in most cases enough to to prevent a suicide and um, not that i condone us walking up to just all of our friends and family and say are you thinking of killing yourself um that's probably not a good party conversation or question but but we can we can certainly use this forum uh if if you're listening and you're struggling you can call 1-800-273-8255 any time of the day or night you can talk to someone and uh and you can get help and those counselors i saw interviews with the counselors and these suicide hotlines they're trained and they're dedicated um you know they're they're dedicated to listening and they're dedicated to helping you work it out um they're not uh, they're not just there to because they've got to be there. Um, you know, we're uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, thank you, Violet. Thank you, Ellie. Welcome to Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, join us next um, on uh, next week at uh, one o'clock for Objection to the Rule. Radio Free Brooklyn is not for profit radio station. Uh, we don't have ads. Uh, we just have the shirts on our backs. No donation is small. Please visit us at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and click the Donate button. 
donate the cost of your morning coffee or of a new motorcycle that I am dreaming of and dreaming of and dreaming of and dreaming of. (laughs) It all helps. Thank you for listening. Thank you.